This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by Zeiss Sports Optics. Zeiss binoculars and spotting scopes offer brilliant, bright images and high performance. They're also tough as nails. I can speak from experience because I once left my Zeiss binoculars on the roof of my car and drove off. They landed in the middle of the road, and when I found them again, thank goodness, uh, they were still in alignment. Zeiss even fixed them back up for me, so I can unequivocally state that their service and support are great as well. You can get more information and browse the current lineup at zeiss.com slash sports hyphen optics. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. I have a couple things I wanted to lead off with this time around, both related to young birders in some way, a topic near and dear to many of our hearts here at the ABA. Most of us on staff were kid birders at one time, as you might expect. It's, it's hard to get bit by the birding bug early on and and not try to make it a professional goal, even if that path often ends up as windy as a flushing Wilson snipe. That is something I can certainly speak to. Anyway, we we recently announced the 2019 Young Birders of the Year, a pair of incredibly skilled and dedicated young birders from opposite sides of the continent. Uh, That's 13-year-old Ronan Nicholson from Sacramento, California in the Younger Group, and 17-year-old Max Newtbar from Charlottesville, Virginia in the Older Group. Congratulations to both of you. To win that competition is no small feat. And even even the runners up had amazing submissions. There are some really, really impressive young birders out there. And if you are involved in a local Audubon chapter or bird club or state ornithological society, you you probably know this. It really seems like they're everywhere these days. If you're not familiar with the Young Birder of the Year program, you maybe you're a young birder, you know a young birder who might want to participate, go to youngbirders.aba.org to learn more. Uh, the short version, the elevator speech version, is that the kids participate in different modules like sketching and photography and field notebooks, conservation. And they are mentored along the way by some real leading lights of the birding community like Michael O'Brien, Jonathan Franzen has been a a judge of the writing, the writing module, Uh, Mia McPherson, the photographer, Mike Parr, president of the American Bird Conservancy. These, these are people who know what they're doing. They know how to help kids who are passionate about birds and birding and bird conservation. It's a big bird love fest, like you might imagine. Um, So definitely check that out if you are interested or you know someone who would be interested. Congrats, Again, to Ronan and Max, I can't wait to see where where y'all take this birding thing. It's sort of related. The ABA Leica Subital Weed Ears are riding again at the Champions of the Flyway at the end of this month. Uh, This time it is to help protect vultures in East Africa. They are raising money right now. You might remember the Weed Ears from a podcast they did last year. Uh, That is 0209 when I was there with them. Uh, it is Aiden Place and Joanna Beam from last year with new weed ear uh, Gautamapta this year. It, it was a blast. Um, I don't think I'll be able to swing it this year, but the cause is still a good one. Uh, the people that are involved are, are amazing conservationists. There are a ton of great stories that come out of champions about birds and, and people and all that cross-cultural, cross-boundary efforts to bring folks together for the sake of birds. There are teams from the U.S. and Canada this year. A friend, Jody Allaire from Bird Studies Canada, you may remember him. He's been a guest on the podcast before. Uh, there are Palestinian birders that participate. There are teams from all over Europe. Uh, there's a team from Kenya this year because the conservation program 
program that they are supporting is in East Africa. It is it is worth following along and maybe throwing a bit of money the Weed Ears way if you can or want to spare it. Uh, the link is in the show notes there. On the show today, I've got a little more to say about young birders and old media versus new media. But first, uh, have you seen your Purple Martins yet? If you haven't, you probably will soon. Dr. Kevin Frazier of the University of Manitoba is with me today to talk about his work with Purple Martins and their amazing migration. All that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of February, first part of March 2019. Sometimes birds come along that, strictly speaking, are not first state records, but it's been so long since the last one that they definitely feel like first state records. Into this category can be placed the boreal chickadee seen last week in Warren County, New Jersey. The appropriately named boreal chickadee is a bird of the, you guessed it, boreal forests and isn't commonly found south of Canada and the Canada-adjacent states. The closest resident boreal chickadees to New Jersey are probably the ones in far northern New York. The species will wander, apparently, though it hasn't in decades. This is the first boreal chickadee seen in New Jersey since the early 80s. And that one was the first one seen there since the 50s or 60s. So I guess it's a pretty nice every 30-year pattern going on there. So it is understandable that Jersey birders are treating this as sort of a de facto first record, first in a generation of birders at least. So that's pretty exciting. Florida is hot right now, and not just because spring is on the way. There have been a number of Caribbean rarities in Miami-Dade County, specifically of late. A trifecta of Lasagras flycatcher, thick-billed vireo, and bananaquit have been present at Crandon Park in Miami for about a week now. Those are all code four species, so that's like a combined code 12 or something like that. Also, one or more uh, yellow-faced grassquits have been seen in Monroe County, but that is a tough one as those species are commonly kept in the cage bird trade. So not all birders consider those to be countable, quote-unquote countable. Uh, your mileage may vary. This is just a little bit of the ready landscape of the ABA area for the period for the whole thing. Check out the ABA blog every Friday or join the ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash ABA Rare and on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. Spring is finally on its way, and with it, the promise of returning migratory birds to the United States and Canada. Uh, among the first to arrive every year, and among the most beloved among birders and non-birders alike, is North America's largest swallow, the Purple Martin. Uh, they're chatty, they're gregarious, they inspire a ton of people, and, and one of those people is Dr. Kevin Frazier of the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg. He's a migration ecologist with a particular interest in neotropic migrants, especially Purple Martins. He's here to talk to me about the, the uncommon lives of these common birds. Uh, thanks for joining me, Kevin. Oh, thank you very much. Great to be here. Um, you know, I always think of purple martins as one of those species that, you know, maybe along with bluebirds and hummingbirds and that non-birders get super excited about. Um, I know people who are not by like by any stretch birders, but they have a martin house and they take care of it every year. What is it about martins do you think that really appeals to people? I think they offer a chance for a, a personal connection with a living bird because you can attract them to artificial housing in your yard. You can watch them come back each spring and use them as sort of a, a nice sign that, that spring is, has arrived or is about to arrive. Um, you can watch uh, the parent birds raise nestlings through the season and see them go and, and maybe sometimes see the same ones return again if, if you're doing banding of birds. So I think they, they kind of offer a, a personal window into the lives of, of birds during the nesting season, which I think is 
is really appealing to a lot of people that put out housing for Martins. Yeah, and they're really easy to take care of too. I mean, my, my dad used to have a purple Martin house before his yard got too kind of overgrown with trees, but, um, and they would come back every year, the same, the same Martins. Um, I imagine that makes studying them a lot easier. It does, yeah. There are so many sort of black boxes of migration and, and all sorts of research questions that we couldn't really get at with other kinds of migratory birds because they're more spread out in the landscape, their nests are harder to find. Um, but having sort of accessible long-distance migrants uh, that take readily to housing and that we can watch and collect other data um, is really valuable to our research. And we hope we can use that to, to learn things about migratory birds in general uh, through our work with martins. So what does a, a purple martin's year typically look like? Well, because they have such a broad range um, in terms of where they breed, they breed all the way from Florida to, to central Alberta, it can differ a little bit. Um, across latitude, but for the most part, um, they're breeding in North America across that range. Um, and then they're spending a decent part of the year on spring and fall migration. And they're spending most of their year, whether you're a, a Florida Martin or an Alberta Martin, uh, actually in the tropics and, and mostly in the Amazon basin that we found. Spring migration tends to be a lot faster uh, than fall migration. So uh, some purple martins are, are getting all the way back to their breeding sites in just over two weeks. Wow. And for some birds, that can be you know over 10,000 kilometers. So it's quite a quite a journey in a very short time in spring. Um, in fall, some some populations and some individuals tend to be a little more leisurely um, on fall migration. They might spend up to a month at some stopovers. So that fall migration journey takes a little longer. Mm-hmm. I, I know that in fall migration, uh, one of the places where I live in North Carolina, out on the coast, uh, there's an old bridge that um, seems to attract hundreds of thousands of purple martins every year in the fall for like the, a two week period. And people go out underneath the uh, underneath the bridge, and you can like sit underneath this like mass of, of purple martins. It's one of the really cool things about them that they they migrate in these surprisingly large groups. They're traveling together a lot. Yeah, that's another thing that really uh, attracts people to martins as well, is this big sort of natural spectacle, these large uh, post-breeding roosts that they, that they make. And you can see those all the way from, from the, the northern end of the range in, in, in southern Canada all the way to um, all the way through the southern U.S. And, but those roosts are, are getting bigger and bigger and bigger, we think, as the birds are moving further south because they, they can draw in more migrants from, from further north and they all seem to, to mix at those sites. And, and there are a few things about those roosts. One thing is that they're they're in sort of huge numbers, so the greater safety from predators. There are a lot of a lot of aerial predators that might um, want to eat a martin um, on their own migrations. And while the martins are migrating mostly, we think individually or in small groups, they do um, seem to aggregate um, in large numbers at their stopovers, like the one you're you're describing. Swallows in general are mostly diurnal migrants. Uh, is that correct? I imagine martins are, are the same for the most part. Yeah, there's sort of a, a general pattern that we think most swallows use, which is to have a, a fly and forage strategy on migration. So that means flying and, and, and hawking and feeding on insects while they're migrating. Um, because unlike a lot of other songbirds, they're doing both their migration and we think they're refueling during the day. Um, so there's sort of that that bottleneck there in time, whereas other songbirds are you know migrating through the night and then foraging during the day. So they can they spread that out a bit. Uh, but we think martins are probably doing, and like other swallows, are probably doing that together. We're getting a few new insights onto how much they may use some night travel through our tracking research. Um, but mostly they're 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 using daytime flights. So how are you tracking these birds? 
Well, we, we're using a variety of, of techniques. We started uh, with light-level geolocators and are still using those. Um, so little tracking devices that record uh, day length um, and time. And from that, we can get Latin long positions of, of where the birds are. Um, so these are little you know, one-gram devices that the bird carries with them, like a little backpack to record where they are. Uh, more recently, we're using uh, different generations of, of GPS tracking tags. They give us positions that are a little bit more precise and we can kind of program when they will connect with satellites and take a point. Um, and those are, are precise down to about 10 meters. So oh, wow. th those data are really exciting to get back when you can you know, sit in the lab and zoom in on the clump of trees where a martin may have roosted um, on its migration or, or somewhere in the Amazon. So these martins are traveling in these big flocks. Do, do you like to spread these kind of backpacks out? Have you ever had you know more than one tracked bird in, a, in one flock that's moving around? Um, we've never been able to identify uh, birds that are traveling uh, together. We do definitely spread them out. We through um, through the years we've developed strong ties with all sorts of individual citizen scientists, NGOs, including the Purple Martin uh, Conservation Association, so that we can um, track birds from from places from across the breeding range. And now we've we've um, expanded that work uh, more recently into work at the overwintering sites. So we have a, a couple oh, cool. of partners in, in, in South America as well that we're now working with uh, for tracking and citizen science data as well. So we're really aiming for a, a range-wide approach. Oh, neat. What have you found, just kind of generally speaking, um, that you may not have known about how purple martins migrate, how they're moving across the landscape? Oh, oh good, good question. I think we... We were surprised every new season of research because there's such a because there's been such a black box in terms of of their movements and, and migration. Uh, one of the first things that that really uh, surprised us was uh, how much within winter movement they're doing. So this is movement that they would do after they get to their overwintering sites, uh, which we found are mostly in the Amazon basin. Um, so after traveling, you know, five thousand to ten thousand kilometers on fall migration, depending where their breeding site was. Uh, they might travel an additional 1,000, 1,500 kilometers around the Amazon afterwards. So, That's wild. Um, whereas we think a lot of songbirds are sort of a little more sedentary and usually territorial um, at their overwintering sites. But martins are aerial throughout the whole overwintering season. And it's not like they're moving through the winter and getting closer and closer to their breeding sites to get a jump on spring migration. Often it's in the opposite direction. So their spring migration is being even longer than their fall migration. Wow. How many kilometers or, or miles do you think that a, an individual purple martin might be moving in a year? Well, the the max that we've we've tracked so far is about twenty two thousand five hundred <laughs> kilometers for for one individual bird. So it's, yeah, it's quite quite amazing. Ten thousand, twelve thousand miles. Yeah, that's crazy. So you know, forty five gram bird that can fit in the palm of your hand is, is yeah traveling those massive distances and and sometimes quite quickly as well. So we have some migration rates as, for for them too. Yeah, I you know I've heard um, stories from people who have birded the Amazon or been on like a like a boat ride on the on the Amazon River or the Orinoco or something, and there's these, and you're you're kind of motoring along, and there are these sandbars in the middle, and there's like purple martins there <laughs> in, yeah. in the winter. They're just like hanging out, like they're tropical birds. It's so strange to me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 really, when you look at their their calendar, um, we think of them as as our breeding birds, and they are. They're doing something really important in North America, but. Uh, most of their year for most populations, they're, they're spending time, time there. So um, it's really important to know, know what's going on at that end of their migration as well. And yeah, they, we've tracked them to, to sort of little, a lot of little islands actually and peninsulas they tend to, to roost um, in the Amazon on the kinds of places that you just described. So sort of areas that are flooded and small islands uh, within 
uh, the Amazon basin Rio Negro. Do they hang out with uh, other martin species? I know there's a, a you know quite a few tropical martins that are a little bit different, like the white-bellied kind. Do they do they tend to hang out with those kind of, those birds when they're there in the winter? Yeah, so sometimes there, there's overlap in, in roost use, and, and they're they're flocking together. So brown-chested martins and mm-hmm. and some other progeny uh, species are are there at the same time and overlap a little bit. I love these bird tracking studies. I mean, I generally can't get enough of them. Um, like you're suddenly aware of all these movements that you wouldn't see if you're not sort of watching these individual birds. Has there been anything that, besides the fact that these birds are moving, you know, tens of thousands of kilometers over the course of a year, have you noticed anything about their behavior that has like really, really surprised you? Yeah, there, there have been a, f- a few things over over time that have, have really stood out. One important thing about these tracking studies is that you can connect populations across vast distances. So if you have, you know, a given breeding population and you see it's declining, it's important to know, well, where is it spending time the rest of the year and what's happening there? So if, if you have a population that's strongly connected between breeding and wintering, then you can sort of manage those populations together and you can expect effects to kind of be connected. But then the other pattern is where you have more more weak connectivity. So you have birds that are um, all mixing together from different populations. So when we first started working with um, tracking with geolocators, we were trying to see if any given breeding population is sort of staking out its own separate wintering range or if they're all mixing when they get to South America. And we found um, at the scale of, of the geolocators, we found lots of mixing in the Amazon basin, thinking that they're kind of in the same general region. So a bird that breeds in Florida or a bird that breeds in Manitoba, where I am, might end up kind of in the same general region in the winter. But then when we switched to using um, GPS tracking tags as well, and we programmed them to tell us uh, where birds were roosting at night, so we expect them to be roosting in flocks like they do in other places, um, we found that that connectivity is the, is the same and that mixing is the same down to sort of that 10-meter scale. So huh. we had this huge surprise where we found that uh, a bird that had bred in Florida, one in Ontario, one in Pennsylvania, one in Alberta, had all been possibly you know, roosting almost shoulder to shoulder on the same tiny little island, um, That's wild. Amazon River. So we had to really look at things carefully. When we first wondered if we'd, you know, if we'd reloaded the same data twice or maybe, <laughs> or, but but no, there's that kind of mixing um, of populations that, you know, birds that might be breeding 2,000 kilometers apart are sharing that same little clump of habitat. So how, how important are those habitats then right. to the birds from across the range? And it wasn't that sort of started to appear again and again. It wasn't just at that one location, at that one time, we found um, similar mixing kind of across migration too. We found a whole bunch of birds using the same tiny little delta island um, off the coast of Nicaragua, like during migration itself as well. So there might be a lot of sort of shared habitats and mixing across the whole range of, of martins and around the calendar. So these family groups that come together during the breeding season that use these martin houses, they're not they're not necessarily staying together when they leave, when they, when they overwinter, or, or are they? And they're just part of these larger groups. I think that they, they might, by accident, end up right. the same roost, just because we think that the, some of these roosts might harbor, you know, 100,000 birds or more. Mm-hmm. And because sure. they're in the same region, you might end up with family birds that are, that are together. Um, but in terms of, of actually traveling together or, spe- or spending time together after the nesting season, we, we think that they don't, don't really maybe do that at all. Um, huh. We were able to look at that um, by tracking... Uh, mated pairs with with geolocators. So oh, right, yeah. A group of birds that we tracked from the breeding season, and we found that um, very quickly after the breeding season ended, the, the the pair parted ways and weren't stopping in the same places at the same time, and 
um, they came back in the following year to the same site and didn't necessarily um, breed together again either. So it's sort of a, it seems that the the way that they pair might be more related to sort of time of arrival and and, and timing at the site more than than anything else. That's really interesting. And we don't think that the young are staying with with their parents much beyond beyond the post breeding period. First year, yeah. yeah. Huh. You've also expanded your work to uh, eastern whippoorwills, which is a, another sort of iconic insect-eating bird, but one that's definitely more mysterious. What, what have you discovered with them? Well, that work has just has just begun. Um, mm-hmm. Part of the interest in, in working with another aerial insectivore is that one thing they share as a group is that we're seeing really steep population declines across North America in, in all of those um, birds that are feeding aerially, so purple martins and whippoorwills. Um, and the whippoorwill is sort of similar to, to the martin in that they're um, mostly nocturnal and foraging and migrating at night, whereas when martin is doing the opposite during mm-hmm. the day. So there's some interest there too in what their, their behaviors might be like. Um, we've um, started tracking whippoorwills with, uh, with GPS tags and also with, with MODIS uh, radio tags, which I can tell you too. Um, and with the GPS tags, we're finding that um, a lot of synchrony so far in the, the timing of the the migration of the whippoorwills we tracked. These ones were from Ontario. Um, and we're finding that they tend to have all their migratory movements during during dark hours, as you might expect for a nocturnal bird. And one thing we're, we're investigating is whether that might limit where they travel and, and what they're able to do in terms of, of barrier crossing. Right. So, and, and where would they eat too? Because they, I mean, they forage at night as well. Right. Um, so they're doing, the, they're doing the same thing that the martins are doing, just just the opposite. They're feeding and, and migrating at the same time. Right. And that might be a different sort of, sort of need to look at that in, in the nocturnal situation. Um, and then with whippoorwills too, we're also interested in looking at uh, their tracking and, and their migration routes uh, because of, of all of the, the, the anthropogenic light that they have to sort of pass on their way from northern breeding sites to, to Central America. And if you look at that in sort of a, a light pollution map, you can see there are very few dark areas between uh, the brightly lit areas that they would have to move through if they were going to avoid that light. So we have, um, we're going to build some sort of theoretical best routes to, to show where they should go if they're going to try to avoid light pollution on the way down. And then we're overlaying our actual migration tracks on that to see if they are kind of deviating in time and space in relation to where they're encountering light. Yeah, that's got to be fascinating because, you know, purple martins you see all the time in spring and fall, spring and fall migration. Uh, but whippoorwill, man, that, that is a bird that, I mean, they could be declining. They, they are declining and you wouldn't, you wouldn't even know it just by virtue of like, you never, you don't encounter them nearly as often. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We, um, we, we found, we were starting at, at, uh, with an even bigger black box with, uh, yeah. whippoorwill, um, and the martins, you know, are much loved as you described in the intro and, and often seen, and, and those roosts are such big natural spectacles, whereas we have sort of cryptic nocturnal migrant that we don't know anything about. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think that we're, we're set to find out a, a, a lot more about their migration through right from the beginning through the, through the tracking. Yeah, that's really cool. You've been doing a lot of writing about how climate change is affecting martins and, and whips for that matter too. Uh, I guess the worry is that, that you know spring is breaking out earlier, so the insects that they rely on are sort of appearing potentially before these insect-eating birds arrive, certainly in Canada, um, where sort of hitting that sweet spot is more important than it might be further south, where there's, you know, kind of year-round activity. Is that what you're seeing? Are, are martins able to sort of adjust their own schedule to account for these things to some extent? Yeah, I think considering that, that aerial insectivores are showing declines across species that 
have very different behaviors and yeah. time in very different places, we'd have to sort of lean towards something tied to their food. And, and then mm. we're thinking about how does that food change with, um, with climate and its availability. So a lot of our work is trying to look at how flexible Martins and now Whippoorwills are in relation to, to those sorts of changes. Because as, as you described, they, they might really sort of miss the boat on peak if they're not well-timed. So the way we've looked at it so far in Martins is to see if um, in really early springs and when we have um, advanced springs in North America, if they're changing uh, their timing to meet that. So are they sort of flexible along the way? Can they speed up and stop over less um, and, and ramp up the timing of their migration to sort of meet those new conditions? And what we found so far is that they aren't really. They're, they're, they seem consistent in their, in their timing um, from year to year, and they might not actually be arriving earlier at their breeding sites when spring is, is, is much advanced. So that's what mm. we've, we've found with them so far. We're also wondering how much um, light may play into that as well. So if young birds are, if their timing is entrained by uh, the photo period that they experience in the nest, as we, we think they are, then if birds are breeding earlier and earlier, then we should end up with earlier and earlier birds, which is great. It would be great mm. for them to, to meet conditions with climate change. But we don't know if that actually happens very well in the wild. So mm -hmm. one thing now is is extending day length in the nest boxes of some of the martins that we study um, hmm. to see if that impacts their timing and if we end up with, with earlier birds when we have uh, a light signal that, that's earlier. Um, there have been a lot of reports recently about the sort of declining numbers of insects in North America and in Europe as well. You suggested that, that a lot of these insect-eating birds, because of their decline, may have something to do with food rather than climate change. Do you think that those, those are connected? It could be sort of a, a two-part two problem. And one is that we have these overall declines of, of insect numbers, partially due to, to intensive um, agriculture. Um, but then we also have big changes in their, in their availability. So insects can be much mm -hmm. more flexible in their timing to local conditions. And, and therefore, right. you have an early spring, late spring, the, the insects are, are maybe more matched than, than the birds would be. And then we have these birds that have to sort of arrive on time from 10,000 kilometers away to kind of match their timing with whatever that peak food happens to be. And as that becomes more variable, then I think that the birds end up uh, having a, a greater difficulty in matching what they need with, with peak food. And, and part of it is how flexible are they in uh, the timing of the migration? And then part of it is once they're on site, how flexible are they in the timing of, of their nesting itself? So they could, they could potentially change when they lay their eggs uh, to ma match whatever the, the timing of peak food is that year. But um, that's sort of the area that we're investigating to see just how flexible they are and if they even have enough time to be flexible like that after they arrive. At the more northern latitudes um, that Martins breed, timing is really short and there might not really be much time after they arrive to be flexible as to when they start breeding. Whereas at the very opposite end in Florida, uh, birds might arrive one or two months before they actually start breeding. So right. there may be more flexibility there and, and uh, or at least the opportunity for, for flexibility in birds breeding at more southern latitudes. Does the type of insects that are impacted by some of these agricultural concerns, does that affect purple martins and, and to a lesser extent or equal extent as whippoorwills as well? Um, I know whippoorwills like those big silk moths, and there's certainly fewer of those around. Yeah, I, I think probably because those, those um, effects are sort of affecting the whole sort of insect community and food chain, it would have to, to have sort of an impact across species. We've done a little bit of research on what martins are eating when they're here in, in Manitoba and, and mostly what they're focused on at the at the end of, of nesting for their, their larger nestlings are big 
uh, darner dragonflies. That's most of oh, really? what they're getting at the end. Yeah, um, they start off with, with smaller prey, and, and then at the end, that's almost exclusively dragonflies. And, and some of those are also migratory and might use right, right. Yeah. foods to, to martens. But since those are predatory insects, they would be reliant upon smaller insects for food right. so to have sort of an overall reduction in insect abundance that would probably affect everybody. Dr. Kevin Frazier is the director of the Avian Behavior and Conservation Lab at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg. Uh, he writes often about his work with Purple Martins. You can find links to his stuff at abclab.ca. Thank, thanks again, Kevin. Fascinating. Well, thank you very much. For an upcoming issue of Birding Magazine, editor Ted Floyd asked a few of us on staff who are heavily involved in various online and print media outlets at the ABA to comment briefly on the way birders communicate with each other and and how that's changed over the years. It's an interesting topic and one that I've considered sort of obliquely through my entire time at the ABA. Pretty much all of my personal responsibilities of the organization are online, be they the blog or the social media or the newsletter or this podcast that you're listening to. My work often runs sort of parallel to the work of what you might call our traditional publications, uh, Birding and Birder's Guide Chief among them, but also North American Birds as well. It's sort of it's sort of an odd coincidence. Uh, prior to my professional involvement with the ABA, I had my work published in Birding Magazine exactly one time. It was a letter to the editor I wrote in response to an article by Rick Wright and I want to say that it was about bird names because that seems very on brand for both Rick and me, but uh, I can't remember exactly what it was. It was more than a decade ago. In any case, I, even though I haven't had my own stuff published much at all, I do a lot with the editors of those magazines, primarily to help promote what they do in places where people who are not members might be able to see them. And then hopefully those people become members to support that stuff because you know membership is very much the lifeblood of an organization like the ABA. So the information revolution of the internet has affected birding in a huge way. I think it's impossible to understate it because information is the currency of our hobby. Information about how to identify birds, where to find birds, how to find other people who like birds. For many years, that sort of information was sequestered in places like, like Birding Magazine. When I was a kid birder and a young member of the ABA in the mostly pre-internet age, that information was like gold. But even my first birding experiences came hand in hand with my first internet experience. I distinctly remember planning a trip to South Texas in the mid-90s and using this new community called BirdChat, which is the, you know, the first nationwide listserv, to seek the most up-to-date information on what was down there. Stuff that you couldn't find even in the famous lane guides to bird finding in South Texas. And the ABA was heavily involved in publication of those lane guides uh, early on, and, and still we still are. That seeking out this information on the internet, on this bird chat, that was, that was innovative then. Uh, it is second nature now. It was also 25 years ago, so I suppose that means that what we think of as quote-unquote new media isn't really all that new anymore. I guess that means I'm standing astride that schism between old and new ways of consuming bird media more than most, at least, you know, among those at the ABA. I don't know that there are two different communities of ABA members, as Ted sort of suggests, and ultimately he would agree with me there. But there's a lot of good bird information and community online, and birders, like everyone else, are getting better at moving between those two worlds. 
birders were great early adopters of the internet because a lot of what we do, especially with regards to reporting fines, is so time dependent. But there's something to be said for the long view, ink and paper view, or at least downloadable PDF too. But I'm curious what y'all think. Um, Do you think that there are two birding cultures separated by the means by which we learn about birds? Do you think that learning about birds from publications, traditional publications and bird books means that you learn differently than those birders who get their information primarily from the internet? Or is it all just one big bird information soup with increasingly varied ingredients? Uh, It's a question that I'm sort of wrestling with. Uh, So let me know what you think at ABA on Twitter or at podcast.aba.org. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. You can join the ABA and help to support this podcast and the many other free birding resources that the ABA provides. Or like NPR, except you get a nice glossy magazine every couple months instead of a tote bag. Maybe we should do tote bags too. We also offer an e-membership option. If you would like to receive your magazines on the web, get more information at aba.org slash join or aba.org slash e-member. Special thanks to Cynthia Baker of Frisco, Texas, Acadia Coker of New Haven, Connecticut, Kyle and Joanna Fisher, and their children, Olivia, Christian, and Megan of Salt Lake City, Utah, Jeff and Eva Valver of Sonoma, California, Carolyn Sundquist of Buchanan, Michigan, Mark Williams of Lexington, Kentucky, Michelle Paplava of Denver, Colorado, Henry Lewis of Fox Island, Washington, Patrick Deccan, Dechen, maybe, of Gramsville, New York, and Kelly Miller of Quinlan, Texas. I apologize if I pronounced your name incorrectly. There were a couple tough ones in there. I'm going to have to have you guys start sending me phonetic pronunciations of your names. Anyway, everybody there joined or rejoined the AVA recently and mentioned the podcast as a reason. Thanks to you all and welcome to the AVA. Executive producer of the American Birding Podcast and president of the AVA is Jeffrey Gordon. Yeah, he was saying one of our weekly meetings the other day that what we really need to add to the Young Birder of the Year competition is a rarity carpool arrangement module because that stuff is hard. Technical production is from John Lowry. In his view, the module we need for the Young Birder of the Year is an eBird checklist module in which participants create a complete checklist of the proper length, time frame, specific location with appropriate field notes for every unusual species and no it looked just like the field guide is an automatic disqualification. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley. They've been pushing for an identification of blurry web photos module for years. The winner automatically would be added as an admin to the What's This Bird Facebook group. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com birders, and on Twitter at ABA. Yes, there is a creative writing module, but we'd like to make the case for a listserv writing module in which young birders are judged on creative interpretations of perennial listserv hits like, has anyone seen my hummingbirds? Please stop using those banding codes. And of course, unsubscribe. Questions and comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.